Welcome to episode 38 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the year-ahead conference, growing confrontation involving China, and Trump's last defense policy moves. Our feature interview is with Jacqueline O'Neill, the Canadian Ambassador for Women, Peace and Security. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Hey, Stephanie, how you doing? Doing great, Steve. Things are pretty busy these days. Uh, I participated in a Network for Strategic Analysis workshop on capacity building Friday, which you attended. Thank you very much. <laughs> This is organized by Theo and Marie-Gézard. And then yesterday morning, I had a two and a half hour workshop with NATO's Defense Investment Division. And today's the podcast. So yes, busy battle rhythm. What about you? How are you holding up these days? I'm doing pretty well. It does seem to be that November is conference month. I was I was at your the, the capacity building event that, that you guys had. It was, I think, the fourth in a series. And Theo Lachlan is a former student. He I did not supervise his dissertation. I was on his dissertation committee, but he was also in my very first honor seminar when I taught at McGill. Uh, so it's nice to see him doing great at, at UDM. Uh, that was, so that was a really interesting one. It was great to see that you had the commander of the Canadian mission in, in Latvia. And I was able to ask a caveats-like question, which was, if countries have different rules for COVID, how does that affect operations? And the interesting answer was that with Spain and Italy getting hit first, and both Spain and Italy have contingents in the, in the Canadian sector, they developed rules that then were, that became the rules for everybody else. So everybody else adopted sort of very stringent rules on how to avoid uh, getting COVID. And I've got to say, at least from what we can, what we've not heard, That is, we haven't heard of outbreaks in the camp that that Canadians are, are running in Latvia. That they're they've been successful. They've been able to operate. They've been able to train. They've been able to do exercises. Even if they can't play hockey with the Latvians, uh, they've been able to carry forward their mission, pretty much uninterrupted. As which compares well to the other missions that Canadians are doing. You know, they had a stop in Ukraine. They stopped in, in Iraq. Compares very well to the Americans who had a ship that you know went went ashore essentially. So I found that to be a really interesting event. So uh, I've been doing a lot of things like that. I was at a book workshop this morning. Just seems like the virtual reality means that everybody is organizing stuff and, and trying to get people involved. So it's a pretty competitive space. Yeah. And I know you're busy planning for the year conference too. Uh, that's on December 4th. And I'm looking at your program now browsing and I see you've got Minds funding for this. And what's the big theme of the year ahead conference? Is the goal to make predictions about the state of international politics, hence the title year ahead? Well, this is, uh, I want to say it's the fifth year running. I, I could be off by a year, but we've had this event uh, run out of uh, Carlton's shop, CSID, Center for Security Intelligence and Defense Studies, which is the NIPSIA Research Center. And we've been running it for the past five years, usually at the War Museum. Now this year it's virtual. And the idea of this event is to inform the town, since we are in Ottawa, inform the folks in the policy community of what are the likely challenges in the next year and have people suggest a variety of solutions to those problems. 
it's been a pretty well attended event. We've been able to have a very crowded room, which we can't do this year, but we seem to already have an, enough registrations that the attendance will be at least as similar. It will be a virtual event that people can access for free. Usually we charge people money for the food and for the room, but now it's going to be entirely free. And we have a variety of people speaking on it. Uh, our keynote speaker is Jacqueline O'Neill, who is the ambassador for Women, Peace, and Security. We have a, a diversity fireside chat. We've been doing this for the past couple of years of trying to highlight different voices in town and also different voices out of town who might help people think about how to improve uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity within the defense and, and security sphere. So the good news for this year's event is we have a couple of people from the indigenous community who are who have been working in defense and security who will talk about their experiences and what they've learned. We're going to have a panel on China because that is the foreign policy problem of the day. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes on the podcast. And we're going to have a panel on global health uh, that Erin uh, Gibbs von Braunschott, who's one of the co-directors of the CDSN, has organized with Andy Knight, professor at the University of Alberta, a panel of people from around the world on how each of their countries or regions are dealing with health challenge of the day. And then we're going to have a, a, a panel on gray zone warfare, which will be addressing sort of not only Putin's playbook, but other countries that are using all kinds of means to disrupt, distract, and use asymmetrical means to, to undermine the democracies. Uh, and that includes Philip Dufour and some other folks that he knows that are part of his uh, mind's uh, network on hybrid warfare. Right. And you interviewed Jacqueline O'Neill on, on Friday, the ambassador for women, peace and security. So I'm, I'm very happy that she made time for the podcast in addition to being featured at this conference. And this reminds me that the government is currently holding foreign policy consultations. In the last five years or so, we've seen the emergence of a feminist foreign policy in Canada. And certainly I view this ambassadorship for women, peace and security as, as part of that. And the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, François-Philippe Champagne, announced that a white paper will be developed reflecting this feminist approach to foreign policy. And so I suppose similar to what was done by DND in 2016 and, and 17, the government is engaging in consultations and also soliciting written submissions to be sent to Global Affairs Canada by November 30th, which is next Monday. So there isn't a lot of time left, but maybe this is worth flagging for our listeners and we can share the announcement in our show notes. Uh, it's certainly not too late to contribute to this. That's great. We will do that. Stephanie, uh, one of the biggest topics of conversation these days is China. Uh, we have Erida O'Toole, the conservative leader, asking for the government to do more or demanding more to be done to confront China. On the other hand, we have elements of the NDPs and the Greens asking for Canada to release uh, Meng Wang Zhao, the Huawei executive that we have had in extradition processes for, I guess, two years now. What do you think we should be doing about China? Should you, we should be playing harder, softer, staying where we're at? Oh, right now, I, I think what's really noticeable is that China is launching more aggressive rhetoric and going straight for the eyes, pun intended. This came after the, I'm, I'm referring to what came after the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance released a critical statement about what's going on in Hong Kong with the silencing of critical voices under the guise of the national security law and uh, China retaliating and responding to this criticism by saying that, you know, no matter if they have five eyes or 10 eyes, they should be aware of their eyes being poked and blinded or something uh, to that effect. But I think that 
you know, if the five eyes take a tougher stance in dealing with China and act together, this is actually in Canada's interest, uh, which has limited ways to counter China's more aggressive policy if it goes it alone. And so in answer to your question, and this is something we've grappled with before in, in, in our conversations on China, but because Canada has, has limited options and leverage when it acts alone, it needs to turn to these different types of partners. So even though Canada is getting pressure domestically too, to be more decisive and to, to take some decisions vis-a-vis its uh, China policy, internationally too, uh, it's getting more and more pressure and China mm. is uh, being more and more confrontational. Uh, openly in, in the way that it has been with in response to the Five Eyes statement. So I understand that the point that that the that the conservatives are making for sure, and the conservatives are, are pushing the liberals to make a decision on Huawei and more broadly to uh, maybe look to strengthening its relationships in Asia through the Trans-Pacific Partnership to diversify its ties in the region. And then yes, of course, there's Five Eyes as well as an alternative platform uh, through which to push back a little at China's uh, aggressive rhetoric and some of its uh, actions as well uh, vis-a-vis Hong Kong or other issues of of dispute. There seems to be no shortage of these uh, lately. And then uh, also Canada, uh, that was in the news uh, last week as well, and identified China among a group of countries it accuses of major cyber threats. And so there's just a growing list of issues that Canada seems to have irreconcilable differences over. Yeah. What were were your thoughts when uh, reading about China last week and also thinking about your year ahead conference? Because you'll have to leave that into your opening remarks as the convener of this event. No pressure. No pressure at all. The the good news is, as I I suggested, we have really smart people to talk about this stuff. But it was funny because this morning there was also a story that was being tweeted out by the Wall Street Journal, I guess, was reporting that the Trump administration is trying to build a multilateral coalition to to deal with China and, and to to try to deal with a, when China uses, you know, trade weapons, trade war. And I was like, wow, that's great. After four years of trade war yourself with your allies, after getting out of TPP, after doing all these other things, now you're asking for the allies to help you out in, in dealing with China. Um, the good news is that in less than two months or about two months, we'll have a new government in the United States, a new administration that will be much more able to make these kinds of suggestions and work towards cooperation that I think Canada can work with the Biden administration to try to figure out how to respond collectively. Because one of the things that I always cry out when people demand that Canada do more against China is that there's so much asymmetry here that China not only has so much more ability to cause economic pain for Canada, but China doesn't really get that much out of trading with Canada. I mean, yes, it gets some raw materials and all the rest, but there are other markets for that. And so we have a lot more to get from China uh, in terms of not only markets to sell stuff, but, you know, buying things from China. And, you know, in terms of academics, we're vulnerable to Chinese coercion because international students are a big part of how universities pay for the bills these days. So there's a lot more um, power and interest on one side and a lot more dependence on the other side, which gives us very little leeway. And so I did get some responses back when I said, well, you know, just don't yell more. What is it that we can do? And I do think that that uh, I got a tweet from Sean Fallon, who is a, a conservative policy advisor, and he suggested, among other things, withdraw from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a Chinese entity, essentially, join the quadrilateral security dialogue. You know, those are those are easy things. Ban Huawei, I think, is inevitable. 
I think it's something that's necessary, but the liberals always take a long time making decisions. Mm. So we'll see if that happens. But I think that's the that's the thing. But the thing we have to prepare for is whatever we do to China, we're to get hit again. They're not going to just they're not going to give in. They're not going to surrender. So we just have to be ready to take the next body blow, which means I'm not traveling through China anytime too soon. And I don't think any Canadians should travel to China anytime too soon because they're potential hostages. They've already taken two hostages. What's to stop them from taking more hostages? Um, and that's one lever that we can have, which is to stop the flow of Canadians into China at a time where China, uh, Canadians are, are vulnerable to being seized there. And it sends a message to them that they're, they're not ready for business. So I think that's one thing we could do. And I, and I, I think, yes, Five Eyes, uh, TPP, these are the things that we have to build on and work with to, to deal with China because we can't handle it on our own. But the good news is that I think we're going to find a much more cooperative international environment in just a couple months. Let's hope so. Uh, and even if Trump's not quite ready to concede yet, he has started to loosen up with regards to uh, facilitating Biden's transition, actually facilitating is a big word, but let's just say there's <laughs> progress on this front. Yeah, we've had the state certify the outcome. We've known that that Biden has won for several weeks now. Trump has, you know, both been willing to give the General Services Administration the, the go ahead to, to start the transition process and has also denied responsibility for doing that. The Biden team is, is starting to form. Today is the official day of announcing who the Secretary of State's going to be, the National Security Advisor, the, the Secretary of Treasury. So those announcements that have been rolling out you know, formally today, but we're leaked, you know, over the weekend, we're getting a good idea of their team. And I think it's going to be a team of, you know, not just adults and not just of reasonable people, but uh, my friends in the National Security Space are saying that they're kind people. They're actually people who, who've done a good job of mentoring people from a variety of backgrounds that they, they are not just one note types. The new Secretary of State, Blinken, was heavily involved in Asia policy. So I thought that's a good sign that, that, that Biden's making that a priority. I'm not sure Blinken has much of a Canadian background, but he did do a really good skit with the Muppet Grover. So that, that fills me with much joy and happiness that we actually have a team of people who are human. Yeah, I still expect Trump to leave with a bang, though, and I really hope that won't be the case. But there were rumors of Trump inquiring about attacking the Natanz nuclear site in Iran. Mm -hmm. And from what was discussed in the news, there was no support for this course of action uh, from senior officials. But those are not the kinds of rumors you want floating around during a transition that has been as volatile as this one between mm -hmm. Trump and Biden. And I think that these kinds of rumors, even though they're just, you know, part of what we expect from Trump's rants, tend to fan the flames and normalize the idea of a potential war between the United States mm -hmm. and, and Iran. But the bottom line is that Trump on multiple fronts is just trying to make it harder for Biden to undo some of his policy initiatives, both domestically and internationally. And an attack on Iran would almost certainly ruin any plans of reinstating American participation in the Iran nuclear deal mm. or JCPOA. And so even rumors of things like uh, an attack on a nuclear site can really make it harder in terms of building the diplomatic terrain for these first conversations to take place, uh, hopefully in early 2021. Well, it's not just that. It's also that the United States has pulled out of the Open Skies Treaty with, with the Russians. And as part of that, they're now apparently destroying the planes that are used to monitor the agreement that the United States has specific assets for that monitoring the, the Open Skies uh, Treaty. And it may be the case that those planes are old or whatever, but it sends a strong signal about 
how the the Trump administration on its way out is trying to burn everything down uh, to make it harder, again, as, as you suggested, for the Biden administration to flip a switch and move things back four years. So we're going to see more of that. And t- pulling troops out of Afghanistan uh, is one of the most uh, visible things going on these days that Trump has been pushing it, has always pushed for a long time to reduce the presence in Afghanistan. And the number that they pick now to get down to 2,500 is really problematic because it, it's going to mean that the Americans are simply to be less capable of being in, in a variety of places in Afghanistan, which is going to mean that there's, the training will have to be mostly located in and around Kabul. And it will mean that the allies who are in Afghanistan are, can no longer rely on the Americans to help defend them in case something goes awry. And there are allies, not, not Canada, but a lot of other ones, engaged in, what is it, resolute support, the NATO mission to train Afghans. And yeah. so if we cut that, then the Afghan military is going to be less capable. And so they're going to pay a, a price. And this is all happening at a time where there's supposed to be negotiations with the Taliban. But usually you don't, when you're bargaining with someone, you don't start throwing in your cards and throwing in your chips and say, hey, are you take this. I don't really need it anymore. It, it's going to uh, encourage the Taliban to not make any compromises. And it's going to make it hard because when Biden comes into, into power, can you really say, well, my first step is to send more troops to Afghanistan? That's not going to go very well with the American people who are tired of these forever wars. And there, we do need to get out of these forever wars, but we need to do so in a way that is planned, that is strategic, that is part of a bargaining process, and not just because the outgoing president is trying to, trying to tie the hands of the incoming president. The whole idea of this lame duck period is in the past, presidents generally don't tie the hands of their successor, although, to be fair, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992 deployed troops to Somalia that definitely tied the hands of Bill Clinton. So this is not the first time it has happened, but it wasn't seen as a deliberate effort to tie the hands of the successor. I think George H. Washer, George Bush Sr. was reluctant about it and realized what he was doing. Uh, I think, but on the case of Trump, he's deliberate about it. So I I agree with you on almost everything. Of course, you're right. Once you bring these troops home and and you do the drop down and you keep uh, 2,500 troops in both Afghanistan and Iraq, it then becomes harder to send them back, uh, politically speaking, even if, let's say, there's a resurgence of ISIS in Afghanistan. I'm also almost certain this precipitated timeline for the drawdown came as a surprise to NATO, which has made longer term <laughs> commitments to Afghanistan. And you're right, the, the alliance still has a coalition of uh, allies and partners of uh, 12,000 troops. And it will be harder and harder for the Alliance to carry on with its training activities without a sizable American military presence, not just to defend those allies and partners in case something happens, but for transportation, for logistics, for you know everything that you typically rely on the Americans for in the context of these coalition operations. Speeding up the drawdown, yes, probably also strengthens the Taliban's hands in the context of the Afghan peace talks, uh, since they have been calling for American withdrawal all along, and it's, ha- it's happening even faster than planned. But I'm not sure Trump needs to really care about all that. If Trump is eyeing another presidential bid in 2024, which sets him apart from previous uh, presidents in in this particular situation, he wants to make the policy shifts between him and his successor as clear as possible to his base. And so that's what we're seeing now. I mean, the, the incentive structure for Trump is different than, let's say, Bush, as you mentioned, because he intends to come back, or at least he says he will. Yes, it turns out that, that Trump really wants to be Grover Cleveland, which was the only president before Trump to have served 
uh, non-consecutive terms. She was, uh, Grover Cleveland was the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. I'm not so sure Trump is going to run again in, in, in four years. I think it's mostly a way for him to raise money from his supporters. But yes, he definitely is presenting a threat to, to stick around for a while longer on the scene. And that will be in the minds of everybody, including the Republicans who are thinking about running for office in 2024, and in the minds of Fox, and in the minds of all the domestic actors that, that Trump is, is going to be around for a while longer. And he, his big claim to fame will be that he won the election of 2020, but was, it was stolen from him, which is why he still hasn't really conceded, and I don't think he'll ever concede. But that's another topic for another day, and we can hopefully, one of the joys of a Biden administration is we can actually not think about the American president for a day or two or a week or two at a time. And that would create much less stress for all of us. So that's what I'm thinking thanks for on this Thanksgiving, because as an American and a Canadian, I celebrate Thanksgiving twice. If you were <laughs> uh, an American, what would you be giving thanks for on this Thanksgiving, Stephanie? I would be giving thanks to the fact that a vaccine now seems within our, our sites and that uh, in Canada, at least we can start thinking through the plan for distributing that vaccine, starting with vulnerable populations and seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. To me, that was the significant news of late. And even though we've been expecting this, this news and it's not like it's an unforeseen timeline, it's still nice to have that confirmation and to feel like, you know, within the next year we can uh, maybe go back to, to our normal lives. Well, that's a really hopeful, optimistic note to end the podcast on. So we'll stick with that. And after this, we'll have our feature interview. And then I have a few joyful and fun suggestions for watching stuff, although I'll save my uh, Winterfest recommendations for uh, two weeks from now. Uh, good luck uh, with all the events you're organizing. And I'll look forward to chatting with you soon, Steph. Same here. Talk to you soon, Steve. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have Ambassador Jacqueline O'Neill. She is the Ambassador for Women, Peace, and Security, and she will be the keynote speaker at the Year Ahead event that we're holding on December 4th. Uh, we'll provide registration information uh, later in the podcast. Ambassador, when people talk about women, peace, and security, what do they mean? Well, I'm glad you started there, Steve, because I think it's a term that's not always clear enough. And there's a lot of misperception that when people talk about women, peace and security, uh, we're trying to say that women are inherently more peaceful than men or trying to just make war safer for women, et cetera. But really the idea of women, peace and security is based in the notion that the most just and most effective policies result when the people who are most directly affected by them are involved in shaping them. And for too long, women have been a really crucial community that have been largely excluded, especially from official processes to prevent war, to end it, and to rebuild after conflict. And just to get, give you a sense of scale of that, over about the last 30 years, I know you heard recently on this podcast that in terms of uniformed women in military roles as peacekeepers, they still make up only about 6%. And so women, peace, and security as a concept is about acknowledging that this is not only problematic because it's a violation of rights, but it also leads to poor outcomes. So peace agreements are less likely to last. Uh, I know Brigadier General Bourgon spoke recently about how it affects the operational effectiveness of the Canadian Armed Forces to not have significant proportions of women. And so 
you know, the term women, peace and security was coined about 20 years ago when women from communities all around the world organized themselves and they got the United Nations Security Council to pass a resolution that for the first time says that women are not just victims of war, but they're powerful agents of change and they need to be included in all aspects of it. And since then there have been about nine more resolutions on different kind of sub themes and together all of that makes up what we generally call the women, peace and security agenda. And so you are the first ambassador of WPS for Canada. I guess uh, the two part question is, do other countries have ambassadors of, of WPS and what do you do in that role? <laughs> So yeah, it's definitely an unusual one. I think most ambassadors are to a place, not a concept. <laughs> most are certainly based abroad and I'm based here in Canada. So uh, some other countries do. The first one in the world was actually the African Union appointed a, a high level special envoy on women, peace and security about five years ago. And since there have been a few other similar positions that have emerged. And yeah, so I, I have a three-year mandate. I'm about a year into it. And the primary mandate is to provide confidential assessments and advice to ministers who are engaged in Canada's national action plan on women, peace and security, and about how we can continue to demonstrate global leadership. So my office is housed in global affairs, but the mandate spans all of the implementing partners of this national strategy. So I work really regularly with global affairs, with the Department of National Defense and Canadian Armed Forces and the RCMP. And then Canada, uh, unlike uh, a whole lot of countries, we have uh, both domestically focused departments as well as internationally focused departments that are part of our national action plan. So there are 86 countries in the world now that have these plans mm -hmm. and we're one of few that have such broad participation. So I also work with public safety, with justice, with immigration, uh, women and gender equality, and really, really importantly, especially focusing on the domestic aspects with Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs and Indigenous Services. And so still, what do I do? The way I describe it, basically trying to be like a force multiplier for the government's efforts. And what that means is usually three main things. I'm trying to really strengthen and expand the network of those partners that I just talked about. So more people working on it and more people working together in a regular way. I try to help people across our government get custody tools and resources and guidance. And that's really based in the idea that even if you believe in gender equality, you don't necessarily know automatically how to integrate gender in a conflict analysis or what it means mm -hmm. to cybersecurity or a procurement process. And while we have really good basic gender-based analysis plus types of tools, we need more specialized uh, approaches that's relevant to people's day-to-day -day work. And then the third thing is trying to help Canadian initiatives in this area succeed. So you've heard before about the ELSI initiative for women in UN peacekeeping, mm. our work convening different networks around the world, the great work at embassies around the world. And uh, part of what I'm trying to do is make sure we're really learning from all of those and from the people that we're working with and making sure we have a whole lot of humility on this issue and that we're building back into what we do, uh, lessons that we're learning as we're doing it. So you've never done this before because the job never existed before. So what were the biggest surprises you faced when starting up in, in, in your first year? You mean in addition to there being a global pandemic that's meant no international travel for the next <laughs> nine months and counting? That too. Um, yeah. So I spent, you know, almost my whole career outside of government. So mm -hmm. for this job, I spent 13 years working at an NGO in Washington, D.C. And 
on the same issues, but with governments and security forces and activists around the world. So a lot of my day-to-day -day surprises are things that are related to like the amount of process that is involved in everything in government. You know, I think it's true. There's there really is a form for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the day-to-day the -day level of surprises. But you know, bigger picture, I'm I'm often really struck and really pleased and heartened by the constructive relationships that exist between a lot of civil society or NGOs in Canada and government officials. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of ways we can improve and these are not automatic, but it's really striking to me having come from a number of contexts where, you know, outside organizations and people within government, including people within the military, saw each other as, you know, threats or underminers of each other's agenda and people couldn't be trusted. And then to be here on a day-to-day -day basis where, for example, our national action plan is governed by an advisory group that is co-chaired by a network of civil society organizations and the government. And it just, it adds so much to the quality of the work that we're doing. It helps them hold us accountable even more so. And it's just a really great thing to see up close. I, I remember if I could share this, my, a few months before I was appointed in this job, I happened to join a meeting that was uh, members of this network that co-chairs the, the group and some officials from DND and the RCMP. And there were about 12 people from DND and the RCMP who were briefing about five or six members from outside. And they were going through again, you know, the progress in GBA plus and how it relates to procurement and uniforms and policy and sexual harassment, et cetera. And I really almost fell off my chair. I just, the idea that that level of, you know, input and, and transparency would exist was, was really striking to me. So just the idea and the day-to-day the -day practice of having really constructive relationships between these groups mm -hmm. has been quite striking. Well, you mentioned the pandemic. How has that affected what you're doing besides the fact that you aren't traveling abroad? Or yeah, I mean, the, across Canada either for that matter. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, the both horrific thing about the pandemic and the thing that has made some aspects of it workable uh, to do this kind of stuff is that it's affecting everybody. So mm. it's not like only uh, North Americans have to start traveling or, you know, people in some parts of the world are always going to miss out. So a lot of the stuff that I do with people from other countries is all online. So, mm. you know, I'm zooming all day long, every day, uh, often a lot of really early mornings to catch people in Asia or late nights. Et cetera. But, you know, much of the multilateral work and the work that we do with other countries is online. So we miss a lot of that personal connection, but we're still able to move things. What's really been hardest is not being in countries where there's just so much momentum and, and action going on. And, you know, for example, I was in Sudan just before the pandemic broke out and, and it was just such an incredible time to be there post-revolution. There's you know, there's energy, there's so many parts of the government that are needing to come together, so many women inside and outside that are making change. And that's the kind of thing we just can't be part of uh, from a pandemic. In your in your efforts, who do you find to be the, the best allies in your effort to, to deal with uh, women, peace and security? Well, in Canada, a great thing about this agenda, so to speak, is that it has had support from all political parties. And I often mm. talk to people about how we had our first plan in 2011 under a conservative government, the second one under a liberal government in 2017. 
So it hasn't been a traditionally partisan issue, this concept of women, peace and security. So I've been really lucky to have a lot of support from parliamentarians, the House, the Senate, et cetera. I also definitely feel like I'm knocking on wide open doors across you know, global affairs, D&D CAF, and a lot of other parts of government and civil society. So I, I meet quarterly with different networks. We talk quite often. Uh, and I feel like there are, there are a lot of allies in there. There are also a lot of other governments that we work with. And as I mentioned, you know, there's nobody has a monopoly on, on knowledge of how to do this well. And we all really have to learn from each other. And, and there's a lot of that that's going on and a lot of that still being able to happen during pandemic times. So a fair amount of that. We have, I have a sort of rule in my office that we can't use the term like-minded countries because I think <laughs> way too easily gets us into stereotypes and we miss leadership, including on, on women and on gender. It comes from a lot of places and a lot of countries that people don't automatically expect. So um, we have allies in many, many places and a lot of people who are really trying to push things in different pockets of the world. Well, the natural follow-up question though, is that not every country is as friendly or not every bureaucracy is as friendly. So. Uh, I'll put you on the spot and ask you, are there any adversaries that you have to surmount, push it out of the uh, side or, or what, you know, what are the obstacles that you face? Because obviously not, you know, if, if it was easy, it'd all be done and, and you could just, you know, ha you know, hang out, drink some coffee and, and, and declare <laughs> success. Yeah, just days away from being able to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, there are, there certainly are uh, areas of resistance. So I'd say there are, there are really two main kinds of adversaries that we deal with. Mm -hmm. The one would be the ones that I'd call the more covert threats. So I think in the space of, of talking about women and gender, most people know what they're supposed to say. You know, we're trained enough in the words that aren't going to you know, provoke a dramatic negative response. Mm -hmm. So the trick is in tracking and, and watching for people that say the right things, but then don't actually allocate funding or a budget or personnel or send something to a committee where it's gonna die a slow and painful death mm -hmm. or have one event and then they say, you know, we're, we're, we're doing something about women, peace and security in our country or organization, et cetera. And that's definitely an issue at multilaterals, especially. So part of the, the adversary aspect there is we have to really be attentive to what we're watching for and just people telling us that they're opposed to this concept mm -hmm. is, is not the level we need to be working at. Uh, even more broad, and I'd say that's a really small proportion of, of mm. people that I deal with and certainly not in the you know, very, very small proportion of people across Canada. The biggest worry that I have on this issue and the biggest kind of force of resistance is that there is now a global pushback on women's rights and that mm -hmm. includes the attitudes of people all around the world. So they're increasing attacks on human rights defenders, women rights defenders, LGBTQ2S persons and defend and rights defenders. We're seeing, you know, China has an increased influence with many countries in part because it has provided so much military support, development aid, investment, but they've done so without conditioning it on either democratic governance or respect mm. for human rights. And, and those have often been entry points for gender equality advocates. We're also seeing a lot of uh, authoritarian responses to COVID-19. And so mm. a lot of uh, administrations that wanted to crack down on organizing by their own people to fight for their own rights are cracking down under the guise of uh, preventing spread of the pandemic. So 
we're seeing it play out in a lot of different ways. Uh, for example, at the UN, uh, Russia chaired the Security Council last month when it was the anniversary of the, the 20th anniversary of this agenda. And they put forward a resolution that was just wholly unacceptable. And it, mm. it did not incorporate a lot of the advancements and gains that we've gained over 20 years. And so there was a, a lot of discussion among Security Council members of would they accept this watered down version, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in the end, 10 countries abstained from it and only five voted for it. And to give you a bit of perspective, as I mentioned before, there are 10 resolutions in this family. Nine of them have been passed unanimously. Russia and China abstained from one other last year. And this was the first one that was proposed and didn't pass. So we're seeing different ways that, you know, that Russia, that other forces are using things like traditional family values, state sovereignty, et cetera, to, to slowly erode the rights gains and, and the acknowledgement of the importance of this issue from even though there's council resolutions and other kind of frameworks that may not seem like they have direct relevance to people's lives, these are the things, the hooks that so many people in countries use to try to get action from their own government or to point out to their own government where they're not living up to expectations. So definitely concerned about that and, and spend a lot of time thinking about the most strategic ways to, as we say, push back on the pushback. Mm. Well, one of the things that's causing pushback, at least uh, the role of women in the workplace, has been COVID itself. And that's because care is gendered both for the young and the old, and because of the way the workforces have played out in North America and probably elsewhere as well, that there's been so many women who've been pushed out of the workplace by COVID the past you know seven or eight months. I, I'm curious as to whether that has sort of washed over into sort of your, your bailiwick of, of seeing it harder to to advance your agenda because women are you know leaving the military or leaving government or leaving other places because they're the ones left holding the care bag definitely we're seeing that all around the world and as you're saying a lot relates to the fact that we have undervalued care work for a long time we haven't seen it as critical to resiliency as a, as an economy or through our institutions and there are a lot of ways that COVID is playing out also for women, especially in, in areas that are high conflict most directly, uh, namely that a lot of the people who've been advocates for rights related to inclusion, so women trying to get involved in peace talks, women trying to have their voices heard as you know, new constitutions are being drafted, security forces are being reformed, et cetera, they're having to pivot to, you know, frontline service providing. So they're, you know, delivering PPE. A lot of them are trying to counter misinformation in their own community. So a lot of that work is being stalled. And then the other thing we're seeing is, you know, women are, there's, there's a big digital divide in terms of women's access to technology and to the internet mm -hmm. around the world. So of course there are kind of rural urban divides, poor and, and wealthier community divides. But even within households, it's almost broadly true around the world that women will not get priority in terms of access to the family's one laptop or a mm -hmm. cell phone. And they're also less likely to be mobile, you know, walking around or going out in a community. So there are all kinds of ways that women are being excluded further and further from dialogue or from processes that they want to be part of to, to shape decisions. So it's the, the care function, which is a huge, huge one and universal. And then there are a number of other ones that are related to like, you know, another example is that there are 
like nine out of 10 kids in the world right now are out of school. Mm -hmm. And the majority of kids that will not go back are girls. Mm -hmm. So boys are gonna go back at faster rates and we're already seeing really significant spikes in the pregnancy among young girls and in many young girls having earlier forced marriages because their families need the money mm -hmm. uh, from the dowry. So uh, there are all kinds of secondary and tertiary impacts from the COVID uh, pandemic that relate to women's ability to participate in all types of uh, decision-making communities over the longer term. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard about that dimension that it's affecting child marriage and, and the exclusion of girls from schools. Well, let me ask you about Afghanistan. Canada had a long-standing mission there and... While we weren't there to put girls in schools, that was the public face of the mission. And so I guess I think our listeners would be curious as to A, what's going on now, and B, is Canada involved in any of it? Because we, we were there for essentially 13 years on and off. And one way the politicians justified the mission was on improving the, the status of girls in, and women in Afghanistan. Has, have those gains been sustainable? Did they actually happen? Are we still helping out in that? Yeah, the gains, uh, the gains did happen. Certainly there are you know, millions more girls in school than there were under the Taliban, a lot more women in professional spaces, et cetera. And the question right now is exactly yours. How sustainable is that? Canada is certainly involved in trying to support Afghan women to advocate for themselves in their inclusion. And we're doing that in a number of ways, including some ways of, of directly supporting Afghan women's organizations who are doing things like I, I just learned a few weeks ago and, and met with a few groups. So just context, so there are, are four women who are part of the negotiating team for the government who are currently in Doha and the Taliban has no women negotiators. Uh, those four women have a lot of links with women across the country and, and some of the organizations that Canada has been supporting have done things like they've created uh, an SMS, a simple text message system where they've sent messages to women, including in rural areas, about the different themes of the negotiations and tried to get their in on them. So they're getting those through really basic text messages and then feeding them into the negotiators in Doha, men and women. That's the type of thing that we're supporting right now, in addition to constantly just talking about the value of having inclusive talks, the fact that no uh, rollback of women's rights in the final uh, negotiation or final agreement between the Taliban and the government is going to be acceptable, et cetera. But you know, really trying to ensure that the idea of the importance of women's inclusion is not painted only as some type of Western notion, but the idea that Afghan women themselves, mm. which they are advocating directly for themselves, are really, you know, uh, front and center and as visible as possible as we look at the upcoming conference and, and, and various other aspects. And it's tough, you know, it's tough. Yeah, I was always struck when I was working on Afghanistan, uh, the pictures you would see of, of the 1970s where women were out and about and seemed to be living lives of where they had some latitude over how they lived their lives. And then 30 years of conflict and the Taliban rule you know, changed that. In 2007, I was part of a tour of Canadian academics. And so they tried to feature as many women as they could in the Afghan government to show that things were better and that they, were, you know, they, they should get our support. And so... Um, it's good to see that there's still efforts going on these days to keep those folks uh, empowered and, and involved. I'm struck by the image of having a negotiating table with four women on one side 
and then the Taliban and the other and, and how that must be going because it, it can't be easy for them. Yeah, well, and you know, Afghan women will, will tell you they've been negotiating with the Taliban throughout the entire conflict. You know, mm -hmm. the idea that the Taliban is this completely unknown group of people who just landed in, in Doha and are unknown to any of the negotiators is really a false one. Mm -hmm. A lot of what women talk about is, you know, they know a lot of members of the Taliban. They've been working with them. They've been working on them for, for a long time and really have strong perspectives about ways to negotiate with them. And yeah, I guess I'd also just say, you know, it's, it's, they face really, really enormous risk in doing so. And mm -hmm. it seems every time I pull up Twitter, there's another report of an attack on a woman human rights defender and a woman associated with the negotiations, a woman associated with a, you know, activism at a provincial level. And the security situation, as you know, is deteriorating for everybody. And you, talk to many Afghan women who are still trying to influence these talks and they're tired. Mm -hmm. They're tired of having to say the same things over and over again. They're tired of sometimes having to make the case to the international community about the value of their participation uh, and sometimes facing people who think, oh, it's just not culturally appropriate for an Afghan woman to be involved in something. And they're saying, well, I'm an Afghan woman. I'm going to decide what's culturally appropriate. Mm -hmm. Are we going to let the Taliban on, you know, September 10th, 2011 or 2001 decide what our Afghan culture is, or are we going to, you know, let our people decide and have it be something that evolves over time? And so they're tired and they're doing a lot of hard work, but need help. And they've asked for international shows of support and, and Canada is really, really proud to be able to do that, both financial ways through development assistance that have been quite significant, and then, you know, politically just standing mm -hmm. beside them or behind them. So there's often still a perception that thinking about the role of women or thinking about how different issues affect men and women, boys, girls, people of different genders differently is kind of a nice to have. So it's something that Canada does because often because we're, you know, we're being very comprehensive and, and we're trying to do things well, um, but not core to the work of our key institutions. And to that, I often respond that there are groups of people out there who really do think about gender in very significant and consistent ways. And those people are our enemies or adversaries. So they don't talk about having gender advisors. They don't use the same you know, jargon or terminology as we do, but they're thinking about gender in a very strategic way. So, you know, for example, ISIS, the, the yeah. peak of the conflict, one out of five fighters who left North America to go join ISIS was a woman. So 20% mm. of people leaving North America were women and they were recruited often online by other women with messages targeted to women. Uh, they were very, uh, in, a, in a very specific and deliberate way, ISIS was thinking about the role both as fighters and as combatants, but also as women in support roles in building mm -hmm. their forces. Same with Boko Haram, two thirds of their suicide bombers are women mm -hmm. and many of those are children, so child soldiers. And they're using women because they're less likely to be searched at checkpoints. They're less likely to draw attention uh, in markets. They can move more freely. It's part of their, their operational planning is to think about gender and gender roles, even though they don't call it that. So mm -hmm. 
even as we think about cyber, as we think about all kinds of other vulnerabilities that we have, we have to think about uh, what role that gender plays in but either enhancing our capacities and also making us more vulnerable. Yeah, I always remind people that women are 50% of the planet. So it's not just a, a niche interest group, but often mostly the majority of people at, in most places. Um, and I so, often say to that, you know, that we've been 50% of the population since Adam and Eve, and unfortunately, it <laughs> moves the needle. So uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about what arguments are going to convince people while mm -hmm. also not trying to say do this because someone is a woman or expecting that because you're a woman you're going to have a certain skill set i always make sure to emphasize the reason we need women and security forces for example is because they can do the job and we need people who can do the job and we shouldn't be having to ask you know what added value do women bring mm -hmm. etc et we should be saying why on earth would we have barriers mm -hmm. to participation of half of our population and that that question's on us to answer not on women who want to be included yeah i i will always remember this one demographer was giving a speech in ottawa at one point you know being regretful uh or wistful about the fact that we're to have smaller recruiting pools because around the world women are being empowered which means they end up having fewer kids and I wish I had been able to have the, the instant response of going, well, you know, if the recruiting pools are smaller, how about we just instantly double them, you know, and we continue to see reports about sexual assault, sexual harassment in the military. And so why would anybody want to join the military if they're going to be a target for that kind of behavior? And there's the deep cultural organizational stuff that's really hard to to change and so I, that's obviously what you're you're facing is that all these organizations have patterns and habits and incentives and processes that make it hard to eradicate the people who are doing bad things yeah um, and we have hard. to make our forces our security forces our, our personnel within governments we have to make this an employer of choice we have to make this something that both men and women, people of color, indigenous people that they are drawn to because mm -hmm. they don't expect to be uh, treated in that way. And it, you know, it's the institution, there's attitudes and, and there's also, I think we are doing, an, um, we have to think broadly about what the force of the future needs, especially when it comes to police and military forces. And, and I often think about having come from the US, you hear people talk a lot about the, the great roles of female engagement teams mm -hmm. in Afghanistan and holding that up as a, a great success story. And I have a number of friends who served in them and they did tremendous work. But the reality was that they were responding to fill a gap in capability the US military did not have. They did not have the force composition that they needed to be able to speak with, to engage with, to have uh, constructive relationships with half of the Afghan population. And so they often chose, you know, medics, people with in totally different functions and, and parts of the services in the military and said, okay, you, you and you, you're a woman, go out and be a female engagement team member. And again, they did tremendous work, but I think it's a reflection of the the force itself, not having the force structure that they need to be effective. And so as we're thinking, you know, five, 10, 15 years in the future, it's not that we're going to have another Afghanistan, it's that we need a diverse range of thinking in order to solve all kinds of different issues. And unless we, we work backwards from that, start thinking about this concept of operational effectiveness much more broadly, 
uh, then we're just we're limiting ourselves. So we, we have to think of it as an organizational need and then move backwards to think about what are all the barriers. And the barriers include sometimes people having extremely negative experiences in the forces, which are entirely unacceptable. So for the year ahead conference, you're the keynote speaker. Can you give us a hint about what you're going to be talking about? <laughs> you know, one of the things I'm obsessed with right now is making change that results from the windows of disruption that we're seeing from the pandemic. So mm. people often talk about lessons learned from this pandemic. And I like to think of them as lessons observed because we haven't necessarily fed them back <laughs> into our system and we don't really know if they're learned or not yet. So I will talk about some of the ways that we can really seize the disruptions from the pandemic, mm -hmm. but build it back into our systems in ways mm. that we can do better. It's also, you know, it's, it's an amazing time in the world where we have a highly disruptive global pandemic and we have the Black Lives Matter movement and, and focus on systemic discrimination and racism. And I think the confluence of the disruption from the pandemic and increased awareness about that, we can translate into some mm -hmm. real gains, mm -hmm. but it won't necessarily happen. And then I can share some thoughts on the, the ongoing idea of pushing back on the pushback. So where are the threats coming from and what can we do to be as effective as possible? Certainly never just uh, trying to preach to anyone, but what, how can we actually tactically uh, push back on this uh, globally as well as within Canada? Well, I'm looking forward to your talk at the, at the year ahead on December 4th. And I wanna thank you, Ambassador O'Neill, for taking the time to talk about rhythm today. I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. And I wish you luck in pushing back on the pushback. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the invitation. On this week's R&R segment, I want to focus on something old, something kind of new, and something in between. On Amazon, there is a movie called Mysterious Island. And I don't recommend that one. It, it's uh, 2011, 2012. It's based on a Jules Verne book. It's a remake of a much better, much cheesier movie. The more recent version, not very good. But the earlier version, the 1961 movie, Mysterious Island, is really cool. Again, it's based on a Jules Verne book. And the idea is that these folks from well, the American Civil War gets stuck on this strange island with giant crabs, giant bees, and it's a fun, fun watch. And it's one of the very first movies I remember seeing in my life. I kind of even remember where I saw it. And so it made quite an impression. And so if you can find Mysterious Island, the 1961 version, enjoy it. There are no giant bees and no giant crabs in the 2011 version. The second recommendation I have is Dumplin'. It's a movie on Netflix, I want to say, uh, with Jennifer Aniston in a supporting role. It's about a girl who is is kind of alienated. She's she's overweight, and her mom is a pageant queen, and 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 so she decides to join the pageant. And I gotta tell you, I have no interest in pageants, but this was a really delightful movie. In part because it, the girl is very much inspired by Dolly Parton, and Dolly Parton's in the news these days because everybody's discovering belatedly she's been a humanitarian all of her life. Uh, she helped to fund the Vanderbilt effort to develop a vaccine, which is one of the major vaccines that we've been hearing about the past couple of weeks. And Dodd Partners is doing other great things, uh, including helping to foster literacy, uh, 
in libraries uh, in the United States. So for the Dolly Parton tribute, I think you should see Dumplin'. It's a delightful movie about these teenagers dealing with body image and identity and a parental conflict. It's funny, it's sweet, and it, it's a nice distraction. And again, it's a tribute to the great Dolly Parton. The third thing is I am now reading Sandra Perron's Outstanding in the Field. Sandra Perron was the very first woman in the Canadian Armed Forces to be an infantry officer. And she had joined the military with that goal in mind, but at a time where that was not allowed. And so I'm in the middle of it now. I've assigned portraits of it for my class. I think it's a really interesting memoir of what it takes to be a pioneer and the challenges that the women faced back then, and they still continue to face in the Canadian Armed Forces. We see lots of stories about sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, of the women in the, and other people in the Canadian Armed Forces these days. And alas, that was something from the very start of women in the infantry, as, as you can see in, in Sandra Prong's Outstanding in the Field. I may not be Thanksgiving in Canada this upcoming week, but it's Thanksgiving uh, for, for my, my relatives. So I give thanks for your tolerance of my pop culture suggestions and for your, your listening to our podcast. Enjoy the week, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.